Welcome to Tip of the Tongue, a podcast on the Nitty Grits Network, where we explore the intersection of food and drink and museums. This is Liz Williams. I'd like to welcome our guests today, Mary and Philip Hyman. They are American food historians living in Paris, working primarily in French. For the last 20 years, they have been working on a survey of French traditional foods sponsored by the French government, and they've done work researching French cookbooks from the 16th century to the present. Welcome. So I am happy to see you here in New Orleans, and I know you've been here before. So what, uh, what, considering all the work that you do in French, and I know that a lot of it is really basic history, I'm personally more interested in the way the culture is shaped by that history and by the food and the, what you can learn about culture from cookbooks. So since you've been researching this long period of cookbook mm-hmm. writing, what do you think you can say about how the culture has changed as the food has changed? Well, I think that you're always looking for dishes that people identify with and who they are, the tastes that seem to be, let's say, French at a given time, and how that changes. And it's sort of hard to put your finger on because there's relatively little that's very concrete. Well, and nobody says, this is what we all identify that's with. Right. <laughs> so the cookbooks are interesting if you can read between the lines. That's the main thing, because it looks, any cookbook looks like a mishmash, you know, one recipe after the other. And uh, at any given period, it just may seem to be anything goes. But if you start dissecting the recipes and looking at things which come up all the time, let's say anchovies might come up in the 18th century, and by the 19th century, they're not there. Or things like capers or whatever, which at a given time might be characteristic of, let's say, chicken dishes. I'm just off the top of my head. Okay. Uh, So that's what's very specific about the cookbooks. If you look in, let's say, other sources, such as literature, the kinds of foods that are being served at a, a meal in, let's say, Dickens, for instance, well, they don't dissect the dish. They just tell you that it was, like in France, it might be a blanquette de veau. Well, what is a blanquette de veau? The cookbook will, will tell you. Right. But not just one cookbook, because you look at five cookbooks for blanquette de veau, you might say, well, wait a minute, it's not like the other. So you're really trying to look at something which defines this particular dish and might actually define that moment in time. It may, let's say, use cream where it's unusual at that period to actually find a meat dish that uses cream. And so what does that tell you? Does that give you um, any understanding of the affluence of people? What's available? Um, I think it's, it's a little bit of both. Because, once again, if you go back far enough, you'll see that there's a time that new foods appear, mm-hmm. or old foods come back into fashion. And, uh, you know, not any one moment in time can be understood without looking a little before uh, and a little after. But I really think it's a question of, you know, let's say, dominant taste in a given culture. For instance, I think in France that acids have a greater importance than perhaps in England. Uh, but let's in the 16th century, it may have been sugar. 
So that changes, and that's what's interesting. Also, you do have, of course, the when you're talking about, let's say, the colonies. This was something that, that was particularly interesting when we did the West Indian parts of France. I mean, they are, they're like, almost like states the way, say, Hawaii is a state in America. Right. Uh, Guadeloupe, Martinique, and Guyane, and also the, uh, the Isle of uh, Reunion, what they call Reunion, which used to be called Bourbon Island, and which is where a lot of the vanilla comes from. Um, were, you know, these were very different climates from the climate of France. And we found that, for instance, things like, for instance, if you had the French bread, which was, you know, a crusty bread, like the baguette, it was already, by the 18th century, they had long breads like this. They were made a bit differently from the modern baguette in that they were uh, sourdough breads. They always use sourdough breads, and now it's a, it's a uh, yeast-based bread. But when they got to the terribly humid and hot climate of, say, Guadeloupe or Martinique, that bread, of course, was totally useless. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's just awful for the kind of crust and everything. And so two things happened. One, they had uh, one of the breads was something they called the ficelle, which is a very, very thin, long loaf, and which you can buy in, in Paris, and which has sort of, you know, relatively more crust uh, as opposed... Uh, to crumb than, say, the larger baguette would have. Right. And so what they did was they dried it. So you end up with something which is sort of a large panini. They still call it ficelle, mm -hmm. but they, it's more like a large panini. The other thing that happened was that for a fresher bread, they found they were obliged to put, let's say, a little bit of fat in it, something like this, which would soften the crust. So it was already a soft-crusted bread, but it would also be preserved better because of the fat. The fat. Mm -hmm. Okay, So there were adaptations that had to be made. And this happened, and of course, then you have things like, for instance, there is a very famous cake. I think it says a wedding cake, if I remember, in Guadeloupe and in Martinique, anyway. And I know it's, it was called the Robinson in France. It's a 19th century cake. I think that was a 19th century cake. And it was a rather elaborate cake. You had a short pastry base, then a sponge cake, two layers of sponge cake, in between which you would have like strawberries and maybe a little bit of cream or something. Well, they get to Guadalupe Martinique, and you don't have strawberries, but you do have pineapple, and you do, you know, or at least by that, I'm not sure it was probably brought, and certainly bananas and things like this. So they would make the same kind of cake, but with... Bananas, the or local, the, the local, local fruit. fruit. Mm -hmm. So, and this happened all the time. So you'll have things, whether it's the name or an adaptation of something, and that because of the local products or climate or something like this, they they become transformed without totally losing their roots, right. but without necessarily being recognizable to a French person as basically a French cake. You see what I mean? Well, I think that that flexibility is something that I found really interesting um, as it applied to New Orleans because the colonies in the Americas, um, you know, it was very clear that New Orleans was part of France mm. and in the way you're describing mm -hmm. the islands. And yet the colonies of Georgia and the Carolinas and all of those places 
we're very much colonies. Mm-hmm. And that attitude difference, I think, is one thing that made it really possible to accept whatever was there because whatever it was, it was still French. Mm-hmm. And you didn't have that dichotomy of colony and England the way the English did, where you knew you weren't in England. Mm-hmm. And so you tried to remain as English as you could mm-hmm. instead of adapting to the environment you mm-hmm. were in. I, I think that makes a big difference. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. So uh, other things that you think are, um, are, they don't have to be related to the change in colonies or whatever, but other things that you've kind of gleaned along the way since you've been studying the French Gleaned along the way, you mean to say things that have uh, that you think us. Are, would be interesting yes. in a uh-huh. in a broad sense. Well, yes. you know, it's I think it's going back to another subject that that we've worked on a lot, which is the cookbook itself. Mm-hmm. And cookbook history is different in every country, because the tradition of women writing cookbooks in England, for instance, is relatively specific, at least in so far as France goes. Because it's, I think in the 18th century you have a series of women writing recipe books, generally what we call the household management, but also, you know, it's not just, let's say, cookery, but cookery is the main part of it. In France, it will be a century later, and even then, very few, very, very few. But uh, that's one, in France, it's professionals that are writing the cookbooks as opposed to what we can call these women amateurs. Well, are, are the professionals writing for the amateurs, or are they writing for each other? Well, at least they say, well, it's, it's a multiplicity of readers. Uh, generally, they say, we're writing for other professionals. It's interesting because it's one of the most popular books, La Varenne, in the 17th century, 1650. He says, uh, I'm writing this for colleagues who basically can't afford to apprentice with the famous chef. Uh, and they are, or others which actually have a position, but are embarrassed to say that they don't really know what's going on today. So this is bringing them up to date on the fashionable cooking. So uh, it's absolutely, absolutely professional to professional. But sometimes it's just sort of to give people a look at what's going on at uh, a well-to-do table. The other thing that's very interesting, now, now the book by La Varenne, the cuisinier français, or the French cook, was a revolutionary cookbook relative to all the cookbooks that had appeared in France before. <clears throat> it happens that um, there was a series of books in the 16th century, the Renaissance was going on in France at that time, and uh, that very heavily used spices as medieval cookery had done, although the recipes are shifting. And one thing Phil mentioned earlier, the acidity in French cooking, the medieval recipes in France are uh, remarkable for their preference for slightly acid sauces, as opposed to say Italy or England, where they had quite a lot of sugar. And it was interesting that just in the 16th century, I mean, it's, it's part of the sort of the French palate. They weren't, they just, kind of preferred that kind of taste, except in the 16th century where you do have quite a lot of sugar there. Well, what happened was there were cookbooks and a particular book called The Grand Cuisinier de Toute Cuisine, the great cook of all cooking, if you like, 
that was a big bestseller, and it had a very long history in that it was first published in about 1540, and the last edition we know of was published in 1646, uh, five years before La Varenne's book came out. Well, this is very interesting because there were no other cookbooks that came out. There are a couple of things that one can, uh, like, let's say, satires or something, where you, you might have a mention or plays, things like this, where new words, like, for instance, a ragout, which is a kind of a stew that, had, that was highly seasoned, uh, something like this, which was a word that did not exist in the French 16th century of cookbooks. So you, you see some things that are coming in, but you don't know much about the cooking. When La Valen's book come out, I mean, it is, it's, it's radically different. No more spices, except maybe for nutmeg and, say, you know, pepper uh, in savory dishes. And all the other ones have been relegated to sweet things, like the cinnamon or, or things like Cardamom this. Cardamom. You know, things mm -hmm. like that. And mm -hmm. far fewer spices than there had been before. No saffron, which was very present in the Middle Ages and in the 16th century. So the palate is completely different. So when he's and talking about... And why does it become different? There, there are several theories. We worked with a group of people in, in France, um, people studying various aspects of cooking and gastronomy, which began in the 70s in the context of something that was called the École des Annales. <clears throat> Excuse me. A group of, of historians who began studying what they called the history of mentalities. And so it was sort of like everyday life, all kinds of aspects. It could be costume, it could be any number of things. Mm -hmm. And cooking was one of them, as opposed to food as nourishment and an economic thing, you know, famines or, you know, what was going on in the right. economy or, or trade like or, or something. Or trade, something like mm -hmm. that, right. This is really the table. Mm -hmm. People began paying attention to the table. And so we were among those, those, those people. And from studying these books and attempting to understand the, the recipes and various different approaches, it became pretty clear that the reason that people used all these spices and things was because <clears throat> they still adhered to what was called the humoral theory. In other words, seasonings, um, you know, the, the cooking liquids and things like this were there to sort of correct the, the viscosity, the coldness, the undigestible the humors, humors yes. in the foods themselves, which mm -hmm. were, of course, you know, meat, fish, uh, poultry, vegetables, all this sort of thing. These were sort of inherently bad for you. I mean, they had to be cooked. The idea of eating raw fruit, I mean, raw fruit was a very dangerous thing. And so you would cook things, and the seasonings were there to kind of acquire a balance between all these elements. And some people have theorized that part of the change was that sort of toward the end of the 16th century and beginning of the 17th century, medical ideas began to change a bit. And so instead of talking about the humors in the hot, cold, wet, and dry, they began to talk about things like subtility, and you had, then you had something like you had mercury, and you had oil, and you had all these other kinds of things that were affecting the way people ate. And so, I mean, it's all kind of theory, but it is true that you see the arrival of uh, buttery sauces, which you didn't really have before. Mm -hmm. People began to use the indigenous herbs. Now, that could also be a question of people call distinction. In other words, once upon a time, spices were only really for the very rich, but then they became, and it also depended on the quality of the spice. Like if you have a whole clove, it's I don't know how many times more than 
one that, where you have only a little ball or only the little stem. I mean, there are all kinds of different qualities of these spices, mm -hmm. but they became much more, you know, sort of like anyone could use at least a certain number of spices. So maybe there is a question of distinction, sort of, well, since everybody's using spices, well, we'll find something else. I mean, there, there are certainly social considerations that come into play as well. Was there any kind of sense of, but these things aren't French, they're brought in, and that we should, we should eat tarragon or chervil or whatever grown in No, France. I think that you know, there was a, an appeal to the exotic because it was rare, it was expensive, and, mm -hmm. and that was certainly part of its appeal. Uh, the indigenous plants, uh, and that would include, let's say, mushrooms, for instance, uh, all this could be related. Mushrooms are hard to digest. Things you collect in the wild was more for, let's say, poor people. So uh, it's not, well, it's a switch. And it's not just because they are uh, indigenous that people wanted them. I think it's, uh, there are trends, let's say. Uh, and people that at one time wouldn't eat, let's say, mushrooms in the 16th century were relatively rare. It's a sort of let's say distinction once again the what your grandparents ate and what you eat uh you will refuse some of those things is so old-fashioned i can't dare serve it and uh you'll have new things that of course your grandparents had no idea that people actually ate these things <laughs> at all you know, it's uh and it's absolutely a constant that there are always new foods even if they'd always been there People hadn't been eating them. Right. And then there are the, the new foods that truly are new. They come from somewhere else. They never existed before. And uh, there'll always be those who want to have it immediately because it comes from someone else. And uh, those who totally refuse it. But sooner or later, let's say bananas, pineapples, whatever, when they become widely available, no one even thinks of them as having been rare and expensive. Yeah. The, other, mm -hmm. the other thing is, is there, there really was a kind of a... A new way of looking at food, there, there are texts, you know, and people sort of say, well, you know, instead of, instead of using all these spices and covering up with the taste of things, things should taste like what they are. A turnip should taste like a turnip, and a cabbage should taste like a cabbage, so a kind of a purer ideal. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And of course, you, obviously, you did also have the American plants, which you begin to see, like the squashes, the turkey, uh, peppers. You, Peppers, peppers, peppers no. uh, potatoes came in much later in France, but you know thing, things like that. Yeah, mm -hmm. all those those things. Beans, mm -hmm. those were all new. Corn, uh, corn they no, that no. they the corn, corn is kind of interesting in that it was more associated with it. It, it was sort of uh, took the place of millet. And you have it in certain parts of the country, like in the Southwest, people cooked mm -hmm. with corn, but not so much. It was also often used as animal fodder. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. uh, you don't see recipes really much for corn. They call it's it, extremely they, they, it's regional. Extreme, it's extremely regional. It's associated with, let's say, survival. Yeah, it's, because uh, that was instead of bread or instead of uh, porridge of some other kind. It's okay. very, very often mm -hmm. in the form of flour, corn flour or a semolina. So how did, since you talked about the uh, cookbooks written in England by women, basically for other households, mm -hmm. um, and these cookbooks in France written by professionals, for professionals, who was cooking the everyday food in France? Well, once again, it depends on, let's say, 
where you were, let's, if you were a merchant, you had a small shop, you would probably have a, employ a woman cook. It wouldn't be that, you know, the woman of the household would do the cooking, the woman would oversee the work of another woman. If you were slightly better off, you might have a male cook. But you would, as one went up, you'd have a maître d'hôtel, a maître d'hôtel. So it would be, this is an intermediary in mm -hmm. both situations. Men cooks were always more expensive, if you have the salaries mm -hmm. systematically. And in the grand households, there would be a series of people, each one somewhat specialized. You might have a pastry cook, whatever. Mm -hmm. But uh, it was relatively rare that you would have uh, a, a woman being the woman of the household do everything. Okay. And also, there's a distinction in France made between, um, which is not, it's, it's interesting actually, because Germany also had women, uh, at least purported to have women people who were writing cookbooks, because it's not 100% sure they were always women. It could have been men that were presenting themselves as women because of a different tradition. The, the German and the English cookbooks, as, as Phil mentions, are really more like what you might, are kind of about household economy. So mm -hmm. you would have a lot of recipes for, let's say, jams and jellies and preserving, things like mm -hmm. this. Uh, you might have a chapter on the vegetable garden. You might have all kinds of things. Mm -hmm. In French, the tradition is, is different. One thing that was very interesting about the little 16th century books is that uh, about uh, 1560, one of the books has a has a, um, it's, it's one of the editions of the, the Grand Cuisinier, mm -hmm. has a preface, and there it's very clear, he says, we're writing this book basically to help people organize their banquets. The, the cookbook mm -hmm. was not for everyday cooking. Mm -hmm. It was for exceptional cooking. And the thing that was also interesting, it says, so like if you have to entertain your friends or your allies or, or for a wedding or something like this and you have all these things, it says now, basically he says, you can adapt this cookbook as you like. He says, uh, you, you cut the cloth to fit the leg. In other words, depending on whether you're rich or poor, you can substitute ingredients and things like this, which is very interesting. Mm -hmm. But it is for banqueting. And also... The, the tradition, you don't really get people writing for the kind of everyday cooking. There's a, already a distinction between the sort of artistic cooks, which mm -hmm. are for the aristocracy and mm -hmm. for all their grand things, and then everyday cooking. I, I wouldn't be surprised if like every, you know, in the everyday thing, I mean, even, you know, some the aristocracy. The aristocracy probably might have used a woman cook or something. Might have had for their everyday cooking, and it's interesting that in the 18th century, where you have some of these very elaborate cookbooks, and they're all male male chefs, um, a very elaborate thing. We have a there's a very prolific cookbook writer by the name of Menon, and he writes two books which are essentially the same. Essentially the same recipes. One which is called Les Soupes de la Cour. Uh, uh, su supper at court, and the other called La Cuisinière Bourgeoise. And it's interesting because it's not Le Cuisinier, which would be a male cook, but La Cuisinière, which is the, uh, the female cook of a bourgeois household. Mm. So, and this became a huge bestseller. And even like aristocrats for, you know, their, their you know, uh, sort of or more ordinary 
cooking, or sometimes it was considered to be much healthier cooking, obviously much less expensive to make these dishes and everything. So it's very interesting to sort of compare. Already France had the double tradition of having kind of everyday cooking that was very distinct from festive cooking. And it's, it's a little bit like la haute cuisine that you have today that are still, I mean, you know, top flight chefs. And then you have cookbooks, you know, for, you know, everyday people. So one set of, of traditions of tremendous transformation of the product, mm-hmm. and then one that is more close to what it actually is. Yeah. So, but know. also uh, cheaper to prepare. Yeah. That's this always insistence that on this, what we would call middle class, that uh, you were going to be healthier by eating this kind of food, and very sane, and you're going to save money. And you probably have less waste. Uh, absolutely. Yeah. 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 But there is an art, and that's even in the more uh, aristocratic fancy books, of using leftovers. I mean, there are endless recipes for, let's say, beef that has been previously cooked, be it roasted, be it boiled, to make uh, a second dish, mm-hmm. which is not an inferior dish. It's mm-hmm. simply uh, different. You can't do it unless you start with something that's already cooked. Like for instance, a, 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 one of the recipes that is still one of the favorite recipes in France is what's called blanquette de veau, mm-hmm. which is veal blanquette, which is veal in a sort of white sauce. Originally, in the 18th century, it's a, it's a recipe that, that we find in the 18th century, and it was used as a way, it was made as a way of using leftover roast veal. And so you would make this creamy sauce and you would put it in there and that was called the Blanquette de Veau. So, and also, I think there may be a misperception. Um, these banquets were incredible affairs. Uh, let's say you were four people and you're having a banquet. Well, you had to have at least four different dishes per service and you would have at least four service. So you'd have to have at least 16 dishes for four people in the course of a meal. Now, <laughs> Part of the reason is that instead of having a menu that was printed and said, this is, you know, you can choose from this, you basically had the menu spread out on the table. You might like one dish, but not another. Or it might not go with your, you know, with your digestion or something. I mean, quite late on, I mean, you had the doctors that were advising the king, you can't eat this dish. So... There was, as as Phil said, I mean, there is actually very little waste because, one, a certain number of dishes were just there to make the table beautiful, and you didn't touch them, and they would be saved for maybe the next day, or, since you're in a household with a whole lot of servants, it would sort of start at the highest level, and then the people afterwards would have some of the leftovers, etc., 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 down to the fact that... For instance, uh, at Versailles or something like that, you could actually buy uh, dishes that came from the king's table. And if you were a marquee, you know, you could give, you know, say, let's say a large pate or, I mean, it could be almost anything that was one of these presentation dishes. And you could serve that, something that came directly from the king's table oh, to your wow. family. That's and amazing. you have... And, this this goes on quite a long time, mm-hmm. and even into the 19th century, where even restaurant leftovers could be sold to the poor. And so you had a whole profession of people called regrettier. And if you ever have read, uh, I'm not sure what, what they call it, Zola has a fantastic book called Le Ventre de Paris, The Belly of Paris. I think it may be called that in English. 
that's all about Leon and all about all I the you know, read that. It is called The Belly of Paris, yes. And it's quite extraordinary. In other words, there was very little waste because all these players, you know, were uh, interacting to, to sort of finish up the leftovers. So I'm going to ask you one quick question because our time is coming to an end. If you were at the table and there were 16 dishes or whatever for you to choose from, did you have to eat a little bit of everything? No, not at all. You could not at all. You, you not were free. At all. The general change. rule was you ate what was closest to you. <laughs> uh, and you could ask, of course, you know, to pass. Mm-hmm. But generally speaking, I mean, there's great diversity. So it wasn't like, you know, some people, they only had fish at one end of the table. I mean, it was it was spread out in a way that was thought out, let's put it that way. But the yes, the closest thing is probably what you'd have go for first, let's mm-hmm, put it that way. Mm-hmm. I think that that is really, really interesting because today, you know, you could be almost rude not to take something mm-hmm. or whatever. No. It, it's very interesting. You know, people talk often about the French service and the Russian service. Yes. And the big difference is the French service was this service in which everything's on the table. Mm-hmm. Problem. A lot of the stuff gets cold. Even if they had, you know, sort of those little, I can't remember the name of Like a chafing dish. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. And so people said, well, it's, it's a beautiful, beautifully set table, but, I mean, you know, and, and uh, it's at the beginning of the 19th century, people start kind of thinking, well, there are other ways of doing things. And the Russian service... Things were pre-sliced in the kitchen and brought around on a platter in in sequence. Mm -hmm. And starting with that, I think, is when, I mean, in the beginning, certainly people would maybe not take everything Mm -hmm. that was was passed. You know, you take Mm -hmm. some things and not others. But what, what sort of happened is that you then get sort of the menu and you have all these dishes and that are brought out sequentially as opposed to sort of saying, oh, I'd like a little of that over there, please. Um, and I, I wonder if somehow, in other words, the whole system of representation, I mean, the, 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 the French table was so, you know, became the model partially because of its magnificence. Mm-hmm. And there was resistance in the 19th century, like Antonin Carême, who was perhaps one of the most famous chefs of the 19th century and who codified French cuisine, classic cuisine. He was against the Russian service. He says, oh, but our our tables, you know, with the, you know, à la française are so much more magnificent. But if you have an entire calf's head with all of its truffles and things that are all around it and everything, and you're the one it's sitting in front of, and you have to carve this, you have to really know how to do this. Mm -hmm. And so things shifted and became simpler. And then some of uh, Karim's disciples figured out ways of taking these pre-cut things and and and, and you know putting them on magnificent uh, pedestals and stuff like this to make them just as beautiful as the ones that they'd come before. But that's that's a whole question of of, of table service and and things like this. But I wonder if it isn't a little bit you know the number of dishes became reduced ultimately and especially after the First World War drastically. And. Then, I guess, because there were fewer dishes, people began sort of, it was just sort of, you know, one entree, one thing, et cetera, et cetera. Mm-hmm. Et cetera. Mm-hmm. And so, so it, you, you can't sort of just sort of say, oh my goodness, they had, you know, 16 dishes, they have to eat all of it. No, not at all, not at all. 
So I want to thank you. I think we could sit here and just keep talking. So <laughs> I have to keep my eye on the clock. So I want to thank everybody for listening to Tip of the Tongue. We come to you from the studios in the Southern Food and Beverage Museum on the Nitty Grits Network in New Orleans. Please come by when you're in New Orleans, and don't forget to subscribe to our podcast wherever you listen to podcasts. Thank you.